0: You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leaders series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program.
1: You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at edcorner.stanford.edu.
0: Welcome to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leaders Seminar Series. I am Mike Rothenberg, the student director of the series. The series is brought to you each week by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and the Business Association of Stanford Engineering students. It is shown on TV by SCPD and generously underwritten by Draper Fisher-Jervison. Today we have the great honor of welcoming two fabulous guests, Warren Picard and Andrew Frame. Warren is a partner at DFJ and a longtime friend of Stanford's. In fact, he has three degrees from Stanford including a BS and MS in mechanical engineering and an MBA from the Graduate School of Business here. In addition, he is an engineer himself and a successful entrepreneur and has helped dozens more companies succeed. Some of the highlights his former investments have been acquired by Sun Microsystems, Ask Jeeves and Viacom among others and before that he co-founded Engara Database Systems which was acquired by Personify. Today Warren will be interviewing Andrew Frame, the CEO of UMA which is a DFJ investment. Andrew has had an illustrious career himself. By the age of 17, he was already working for Cisco Systems. And by the age of 18, he was awarded with two CCIE certificates, which is Cisco's top tec- technical honor. And was not only the youngest CCIE in the world, but one of eight dual CCIEs in the world. Andrew has worked at Procket Networks and Trapeze Networks and has since then founded UMA and been featured in Business Week's Top 30 Entrepreneurs Under 30. So without further ado, Please help me welcome Andrew and Warren.
2: Indeed, it's, uh, it's terrific to be back here. And uh, since uh, the, the camera's going to be on my arm all day, I'll, I'll say that. When I was here at Stanford, I played on the Ultimate Frisbee team. And I'm still trying to play Ultimate, but I broke myself about four weeks ago. So it comes off in two weeks. So any biomechanical engineers here, if you want to hasten my recovery, please do. Um, uh, so I, I was here for many years, I, uh, I, I joked that I was on the remedial program because I, I stayed here for six years getting my bachelor's and master's, but it, it's such a great place, hard to leave. Came back for business school. While I was here, I started a company with a buddy of mine that was getting his PhD in the CS department. And uh, I'll tell more stories about that a little bit later. But uh, coming out of business school, uh, my company got funded, uh, they didn't need me anymore because I hadn't been working full time and we had hired all sorts of folks into the company. So I uh, jumped into the venture capital business, and it's been uh, uh, tremendously fun. Uh, I've been very fortunate to have been in the business since 1996. Lots has happened since then. And um, one of the the greatest joys that I get is uh, working with phenomenal entrepreneurs. What, What we do day in, day out is we invite entrepreneurs in to present their business opportunity, to present themselves, and it's the combination of a truly charismatic, intelligent, uh, just someone full of gumption. The, the entrepreneur. No, keep it coming. Good. No, yeah. It. <laughs> it, it's it's a combination of all those things that makes for a great entrepreneur. And then it's a great business opportunity, uh, a great market, a uh, you know a, a large market size, uh, great meeting a great customer need. All these things wrap up into identifying a great opportunity. So at the end of the day, being a venture capitalist is actually a very easy business. You just wait for somebody like Andrew to walk in the door with the uh, opportunity that he is uh, presented. Now, we're going to leave a few things uh, for the imagination here because uh, Uma isn't rolled out just yet, and Andrew will explain all those things. But the more poignant tales are tales of a startup entrepreneur and how you start from inception and get all the way to where they are now and beyond. And uh, Andrew's got some great lessons to pass along to us that uh, he's learned over the past N years. I'll let him fill in the blanks, but... Now, without further ado, Andrew Frame and 10 lessons he's learned. Yeah, so I started
3: uh, my first business. I was 15. It was in Las Vegas. It was an ISP and ended up scaling that and selling that when I was 17. That was my first sort of entrepreneurial experience. And as they mentioned, I joined Cisco when I was 17, and it gave me my first sort of big company experience. It wasn't a dramatically large company, but it was you know 10,000 employees and worked there for about... Five years before joining another startup called Procket Networks, where we built a terabit router. It was my first true startup experience. We raised a lot of money and you know went through the startup roller coaster. And I started UMA. And I've been waiting to start, you know, a bigger vision company for some time. And it's taking me, you know, going through those different company experiences to prepare me for UMA. And again, you know, unfortunately we can't talk about the product, we can't talk about the technology necessarily. We're here to really focus on the company and some of the lessons learned, um, that I've learned anyways. And soon you guys will find out all about UMA. I promise it's coming soon and it's going to be pretty high profile. So without further ado, (coughs) 10 things I've learned about starting a company. The first thing, and you guys have heard this before, I want to emphasize. It's very, very difficult to start a company, whether it's in a large market or a small market. So why would you start it in a small market? Pick the big markets, study the competition. When I first started the company, it's not that I had some technology and I was looking for some way to apply it to a market. It didn't start with a technology, even though I had a technology background. It started with a market. I found a market that was growing extraordinarily fast, had... Lots of competition, but at the same time, there was a very low bar for innovation, and decided to study that market. And the the market, I'll just be a little bit more specific, it's in the telecom space, it's residential phone service. And we we see a a pretty dramatic change happening in phone service with the advent of voice over IP. We've seen some, some companies come out and do these types of solutions. There's not a lot of innovation in this space. I can't go into any more detail, but that's the market I chose because we basically see the whole world transforming from using regular telephone service from the phone company to some version of voice over IP. Okay? That's as much detail as we'll do, but that market is huge. We're talking $100 billion a year is spent in residential phone service in the US alone. Okay, And it's going under a dramatic transformation. So that, to me, was a great market opportunity to come in, study the strengths and weaknesses of all the solutions in the market, and figure out a way to enter with a disruptive edge through some technology that we created to to address this market and ultimately dislocate it. Uh, One of the reasons we can't talk about it is because when we do come out, I mean, there's a very competitive nature to this, and we're very careful about the sort of reaction we're going to get from the incumbents in that industry, so we can't talk about it yet, but I promise it's disruptive, and you will hear all about it soon. Recruiting. As an entrepreneur, this is the most important thing that you can do. I'm a young entrepreneur. Um, I can't go at this alone. I need a team. I need an army of people, and there's sort of two different levels of our our recruiting. You have executive recruiting and you have staff recruiting. And they're two totally different monsters. Your leadership team, you want the best in the world at the position that you need them for. And for us, we don't go out and put out ads on Monster and hot jobs and stuff like that. We are actively scouting and actively recruiting for talent. The people that we bring into the organization are superstars wherever they are. And these are very well-established companies. These are people that are very high up, you know, reporting to the CEO and doing a fantastic job. We come in, and it takes us time to, first of all, get their attention. The first objective is to get them out to lunch or out to breakfast. Once we have that, the objective becomes get them in the building so we can pitch them. Because once we pitch them, they're going to start to get interested. It's a very slow process. Um, Let me just tell a story. Most recently, we were looking for a vice president of customer service. We wanted the best in the world. So we had identified somebody named Tish Whitcraft, who was, I mean, this is a pretty big jump for her. At the time, she was managing support for 800 million customers. She was the chief customer officer at Yahoo. She ran all of support for every product worldwide, uh, dealt with 80 million customer contacts a year and 800 million customers. You know, how do we get her out and bring her to a company where there's 150 beta users to support them and be prepared for scalability. Um, so it's a, it's a drawn out process. I mean, you really have to get uh, spend the time. I brought Tish in for five, six, seven meetings to get them engaged, get them emotionally hooked. A lot of entrepreneurs make the mistake of giving an offer letter too soon. When you have an executive, you want to close that person, wait until they're ready to close. I've made this mistake before. You don't want to get into an auctioning process where there's 10 of you and one of them you don't want to be in that situation. Only give the offer letter once you've managed all of the risk and removed it all and they're ready to sign. Almost every one of my executives signs the offer letter on the spot. We know what numbers it takes to get them. We know what the risks are as long as we can meet the numbers and the risks are out of the way, we got them. And so, spend the time make sure when you give an offer letter that that person is going to sign pretty much on the spot. And by the time they see the numbers, we don't we don't you know, they're not going to join us because we're paying the most amount of money. Sure, there's equity involved, but uh, don't even get to numbers. Talk about numbers afterwards. I mean, they should be jumping up and down by the time that they get you, you get them an offer letter based on the opportunity and the company alone. At the individual level, we have employee number 15 was a full-time talent scout. His job is to sit on LinkedIn every day, and, you know, every time we have a, a manager who needs uh, an employee, they put a list of five companies. Where does this person come from? So our Talent Scouts job, we've got all the org charts for all the different companies. I mean we go in and take very happy people out of companies. We're like a company wrecker. I mean these are happy people. And so we go in, get the person, bring them in, same sort of tactic. It's a little easier to close the individual contributors and the more of these people that you get going and you have them aligned to this vision, the easier it becomes. It's a bigger and bigger magnet. So you know, you can't always get the biggest fish at first, but as you start to establish that, you have a, a, a better tool for recruiting, which is they're among, you know, greatness and they know that. Organizational design. This is very important to get right at the beginning. It fosters clear communication, clear demarcation of responsibility and decision-making within your organization. Here's what ours looks like. And oftentimes, this is a function of the talent that you have, okay? There are a couple of key points with this slide. First of all, product management is in the middle of everything. And that's how it works in a healthy company. Um, Everybody has ideas. How are products developed at our company? Well, product management controls the roadmap, controls exactly what's going to be built, and controls resources of engineering. So they're driven by two things, the market, what the customers want, and the idea pool. And there's millions of ideas at a startup. Everybody has an idea. And every person in our company can contribute as part of the idea pool, whether it's the receptionist or the VP of engineering. Everybody can give it to our director of product management. He figures out what to build. Notice that engineering doesn't have to be in tune with the market. This is what you want in a healthy company. They trust that product management knows the customers, knows the market, that they don't have to figure out what feature to go first, or when do we develop this, the product management organization does that. You want to make sure that these expectations are set clear at the beginning of the company before people are hired so they know how they fit into the organization. Now we foster a very collaborative environment where people want to uh, brainstorm, there's a lot of creative tension in, in, in the company, but at the end of the day, everybody knows what decisions belong to them. Every one of these have clear, clear demarcation points. Board construction. This is vital. If you, got the, if you get the wrong board, it, it can really hurt you. Um, if It starts with the VCs. When you're choosing a partner in the VC world, you want to find somebody. I mean, DFJ has a reputation for being very supportive, very pro-entrepreneur. That's exactly what you're looking for. You're going to go through ups. You're going to go through downs. It's not always going to be pretty. And you want a VC who understands that, who understands startups, who understands that as long as you're trending in the right direction, no matter what, even if you have a, bo- a bad month or a bad couple months or something bad happened, that you're going to get through it and you're going to survive and you can stick together as a board. Um, Independence, very important. Get experienced CEOs who have done companies like the one that you're building and face the sort of challenges you're gonna challenge and put them on the board. Because they've seen it before and they're gonna be invaluable. As an entrepreneur, you need to make sure that you establish relationships, personal relationships with every one of your board members. It's very important. As a board, you're gonna have very difficult times, very fun times. You need to make sure that the rules are set direct open, honest communication as a board. It's not always the most comfortable conversation, but you gotta have it as a board. And to have that board dynamic there is vital in having a healthy organization. You have very limited time as a board. You know, you're gonna have good, you're gonna have bad, you're gonna have ugly. Uh, get through the good, focus on the bad and the ugly because that's really the challenges you need to manage. And we try to you know, foster that culture throughout the entire organization. It's a safe environment to talk about the ugly. If you know about something that's going to slip the schedule two weeks or a month, it's okay to raise your hand and say, guys, we're not going to make this schedule. You need to manage the world the way it is, not the way you wish that it is. Alignment. Alignment's easy when you have a five person startup, maybe a ten person. Then at some point, people start to think that the company's doing, everybody thinks that it's doing something different. How do you maintain alignment and scale a company through 100 users, through 1,000 people? What we do is everything is governed by a playbook. The playbook, the first thing that we have in the playbook, and the playbook is created every year at our leadership offsite. The leadership offsite is held at one of our board members' houses, and we start with the vision. The vision doesn't come from me as the CEO. Sure, I have input into the vision, but so does everybody else. It's a shared vision among the leadership team. People will buy into something that they help create. Now when you're creating a vision, not a lot of startups have vision statements. And it's vital to keep alignment as you scale. Our vision statement is right up front as you walk in the building. And the vision statement can be anything you want. Where do you want to be in two years? Use your imagination. Paint a picture. Whatever that picture is, imagine it in as much detail as possible. Get group buy-in that, hey, here is where we can get as a leadership team. Once you have that buy-in, you build that vision, write it down. Now you're going to figure out how do we reach that vision. It might seem bold at first, like, wow, that's a, that's a long way off. How do we do that? What you do is we have a, a process for coming up with different strategic imperatives. We had six strategic imperatives in our, vi- in our playbook, And every single person agreed that if we do all six of these strategic imperatives, that, hey, we've got to our vision. We did it. And the strategic imperatives are kind of high level, but lower level than the vision statement. And we take strategic objectives. And each strategic imperative is broken down into probably three or four strategic objectives. Everybody agrees that the strategic imperative is met once you've done the objectives. Last thing is you just do tasks. Each strategic objective has a set of tasks associated with it With an owner, with a due date, at the end of the day, you have all the tasks necessary over the next two years. These are high-level tasks. This isn't a function of micromanagement. This is high-level stuff. And a leader owns the task with a due date. Now you have a self-managing system that gets you to your vision. Every week in my weekly staff meeting, I mean a five-year-old could manage the business once you set this up because it's red light, yellow light, green light on each task. So you know the executives you have that are just killing it. They're superstars, green light, every single time. And you know the ones that aren't pulling their weight. And it's not just me, it's them, and it's all of their pair, peers. So when it comes to time to do evaluations and reviews, it's very clear as to how people are doing. It also helps align the entire company because then you go, we have a war room. You put it in the war room, and everybody knows what everybody else is working on and how it fits into the big picture. It helps with motivation. Mishires. This is gonna happen. I've had my share, my share of these, and you know I've talked to a lot of very successful CEOs. Almost every single one of them says the biggest mistake they've ever made in their career is firing somebody too late, especially at the leadership level. If you hire the wrong executive, it's either, it, best case scenario, it costs maybe a million or two million dollars. The damage that they do uh, is not always obvious, but trust me, it's there and it's big. At the worst, it kills the company. A lot of companies will die because of a bad hire at the executive's uh, level. When you identify that you have a bad executive, and it's not necessarily that they're a bad person. They might be wrong for the company, wrong for the vision and the playbook that you've established. They can't, that's not what they do. You gotta move, and you gotta move quick, and if you have a process like the playbook process in place, it becomes very easy communicating back to that person. You never want to surprise somebody by saying, hey, you're fired. Because in your head, you know, they're not doing a great job, but you've never shared that. That's a horrible way to operate. And you've got to praise publicly and criticize privately. You're going to have to have those discussions. Bring them in your office and say, hey, look, you know, this isn't going the way I thought it was going to be going. How do we improve this? And as long as you're open with your, with your, with your communication, Um, It's a lot easier, but that's the biggest lesson I can offer is when you have a situation You got to address it. If your gut says that this is wrong. Guess what? It's wrong. You got to make a move Don't rationalize the good part with all this baggage. You got to make a move and find somebody who's an A player Building for scalability This is easy This is really really easy All you have to do here is put together a leadership team that can scale. If you've got a leadership team that can scale, you have a company that can scale. What does a scalable leadership team look like? It's pretty simple. I ask four questions to all executives. And these are requirements. If you don't meet these four, you can't become an executive at UMA. Number one, do you have startup experience? You have to have seen that before. Startups are a different beast. Big company experience, do you know what that looks like? If you have startup and big company experience, you can, you can bridge between the two. You can scale a startup into a big company. You know the difference. Uh, somebody with only big company experience is probably not going to do that great as a first-time executive in a startup. Somebody with startup experience but no big company experience is probably going to do good up to a point, in which case they might not be able to scale with the organization. The other two, you must have experienced a massive success. You need to f- know what that feels like. A fantastic executive staff that drives growth. Uh, you also have to have a massive failure on your resume, and the failure is important because if you get people that only have successes on their resume, they might have been lucky and just you know jumped on the right buses, or they might have been fully responsible for it, but they've never felt gravity. And as a startup, as a growing company, one that's going to scale, you're going to have gravity. You're going to have bad times. You're going to have times where you almost run out of money. You're going to have to downsize, stuff like that. You have to be prepared for that. And if you have a seasoned executive staff that meets all four of those, you're built for scalability. The product development process. How do we develop products? Um, I was at a startup that, you know, one of the reasons I'm so strict on the, uh, on the organizational design with engineering's department not having control of where the product goes but it instead go the, goes through the product management department is I was at a startup where the engineers chose what to build and there was you know 300 plus million dollars raised to build something that was super cool the problem was nobody bought it at all after four years of building this thing the product management role was to keep up with what the engineers were building so they could update the PRD and get it you know, in tune with, with what was being built, the opposite of what is supposed to happen. Okay? Um, in our company, you know, in, in any company, if you want to be able to develop multiple products, you need to have a process. The requirements cannot change once they've been signed, up, signed off by engineering. If engineering and product management has an agreement, that's the agreement. That's going to be the product. Now, you're not gonna be able to predict everything in the requirements. You're you're gonna have to change something. There'll be something unanticipated. If it's 1% difference or 10% difference, you're never gonna nail it 100%. Um, You need to make sure that there's a nice, creative tension between your engineering and product management department. The engineering guys wanna do a fantastic job, but the product management guys have to be a thorn in the side. They have to say, "Look, I need higher quality. I need you know better quality audio on this. I need this. I need that." They ha- you want that creative tension, and setting up a product development process like this allows you to do multiple products because then you can expand your engineering organization, and you can expand your product management organization, and uh, you know bifurcate between service and and uh, hardware, or any sort of split that you want to do. Intellectual capital. Now people ask what are your marketing budgets and I say we have infinite capital to market they say what do you mean infinite capital we have infinite intellectual capital marketing these days is an intellectual exercise you see companies go out and think of subscriber acquisition and marketing as just a function of how much money do you have you can do that but it's unleveraged you can you can sit there and spend a hundred two hundred three hundred million dollars on marketing campaigns per year but then you see other creative startups that come out get way bigger visibility, way bigger product success, and they have very little marketing budget spent. Um, intellectual capital uh, examples are stuff like you know, introducing a product which was designed to be viral, putting virality into the product so it becomes self-propagating once you release, release it. Network effects are a fantastic example of intellectual capital. Um, PR is a very leveraged form of capital, especially if you can come up with new types of PR strategies and campaigns that aren't your typical, you know, press release or whatever else. That stuff doesn't work as well as coming up with a creative strategy. Uh, we have, you guys will see the UMA, we have, um, we have a projected estimate of, you know, 20 to $25 million worth of PR exposure we're going to get over the summer through a creative version of, of an invite-a-friend type thing. We have a hardware device, but we have a creative version where it's self-propagating, and it has an invite-a-friend component. We're going to couple that and activate it through a creative PR strategy, which you guys will start to see in the press sometime very soon. And uh, you know that's just our version of intellectual capital. Mentorship, very important, both giving and receiving. Uh, there's a lot of ways to skin the cat as a great leader. A lot of different styles that are successful. I chose to get a CEO mentor you know, pretty early on when I, I, I said, you know, why don't I just like have somebody in my life that's been through all this stuff before, that I can ask questions to, that's not necessarily on my board of directors or you know, whose sole obligation is to make me successful. And I got a guy named Keith Kroc. Keith Kroc had a fantastic career. He was the youngest vice president in the history of General Motors. He ran the robotics division when he was 26, straight out of Harvard Business School, Uh, did a couple companies that he sold for huge amounts of money, and then started a company called Ariba. He was the founder and CEO of Ariba. Within a few years, he drove the valuation to $36 billion, which was pretty remarkable and pioneered a whole new type of industry. He's a fantastic leader and uh, you know a great mentor to me. I saw him speak at a conference, and I basically begged him to be my, lead, my mentor. You know He's a very busy guy jetting all over the world, but you know I encourage everybody here to find a mentor as well. If you're starting a company, find somebody who's done that. And you can't always get their attention at first, but just keep asking, if they see you're passionate, you've got a great idea, you're enthusiastic, eventually they're going to crack. I promise you that. Um, Keith told me that You know, he had his own mentor, and he felt obligated to pass it on. Uh, His mentor was John Chambers, and he had helped Keith uh, a lot at Ariba and other places. And so this is just, you know, we're in Silicon Valley, the resources are out there, the best people in the world are within, you know, a 10-mile radius. And so find those people, team up with those people, have those conversations with them, and on the flip side, pass it on. When you have people that come into the company, especially, you know, your team, You've got to mentor them. It's a give and a receive. And so this is a very important thing to take serious.
2: <laughs> Andrew, thanks for your comments. Um, so they're hiring. About 15 minutes ago, he said something about a five-year-old can run the organization. So if there's any five-year-olds in the audience <laughs> <laughs> who's hiring right now. <laughs> So what, what you just saw, and great, amazing lessons that uh, Andrew's learned, he relays here, uh, but what you also saw was the articulation of a great entrepreneur. And when entrepreneurs come into DFJ, I would say that 75% of our decision process involves assessing the entrepreneur. And what you saw right there, you know, somebody who can pick up on all these lessons and leverage everyone that's out in the Silicon Valley area is absolutely crucial. And that's a, the greatest thing about Silicon Valley is how much sharing of ideas there are and how open people are. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's this whole ecosystem that feeds on each other and that's why so many startups come out of here. One other thing, though, that we noticed at Draper fisher Jurvetson is that entrepreneurs like Andrew, they are everywhere in the world. And so you might have a great ecosystem here in Silicon Valley that's second to none, But at the same time, entrepreneurship can sprout up absolutely anywhere in the world. And so what we've done over the past, well, starting in 95, we started expanding with affiliate funds around the country, and starting in 2000 with uh, different offices uh, around the world, is we've started identifying entrepreneurs in basically whatever country that person is coming from, so they can start a company, we can fund a company in that country, and start building up an ecosystem like Silicon Valley Elsewhere in the world, so we can have more centers of entrepreneurship. Uh, we just announced funds in uh, a fund in Brazil, uh, a fund in Vietnam. Uh, we've been investing in uh, China and India for quite some time now. All entrepreneurship can uh, occur anywhere, and it starts with the individual. And it's these lessons which are so are so crucial to a startup. And typically, an entrepreneur doesn't start up knowing those things. And so, going to your last point about mentorship, I mean mentorship is absolutely crucial. So finding somebody like a Keith Kroc or getting someone on the board of directors like a Mike Ramsey, partnering with venture capital firms that have that knowledge that they can pass along, that, it all feeds into the ecosystem. Um, to, to continue the Q&A a bit, uh, I thought maybe we'd roll back to the beginning a little bit. Because one of the things I was uh, curious about is you, know, you were in some large companies. Uh, you were in a startup company. But you had some ideas of your own. And I suspect in the audience here and in, uh, out in television land and blog land, the blogosphere, there's lots of people with ideas. And they're thinking, how in the world do I know when it's right to strike out and strike out on my own? When should I actually start that company? So when you were ideating, how did you come up with the concept for Uma? And then how did you know now is the right time to branch off? It's time to get started. You know... It's, it's funny because it seems like it seems to occur over
3: such a long period. It's not just like a snap, I've got the idea, it's fully evolved, it's ready to go, let me go raise money. It's an evolution. I mean, I think, I'm not exactly sure, but most entrepreneurs that I talk to, the idea started as something very lame, something very boring, a horrible idea almost. And you evolve it. What you do is you take it, and you evolve it, and you'll have a bunch of ideas. You'll throw them against the wall. Something will stick. It'll evolve it even more, and you just keep figuring it out and figuring it out and put these little building blocks in place, and that's kind of what we did is, is you know, I focused, first of all, on the market, and then we had the, the, the base case for what we were doing, which is, it was a very disruptive concept, but it had a lot of holes in it. And we were trying to raise money, and everybody kept pointing at the holes, when when a venture capitalist continues to poke holes in the same spot that means go address it and it might seem impossible or you might be defensive about it but you really do have to use that as sort of a market gauge to figure out where to strengthen your pitch and you know we've gone through many many iterations of the product and the pitch all based on the same core technology but just different sequences of evolution and you know it wasn't necess- it's not like an instantaneous thing where you just go out and raise money i mean Our first round, it it, it was a $6.5 million round, but it took, you know, over a year to raise it. And um, that's the process. You just got to stick with it. And people are going to tell you, you know, this will never work. Just, you know, just stick with it. Keep on hardening it and put that time in and eventually good things are going to happen. Um yeah
2: yeah and I'll I'll expand on that Uh, another great entrepreneur that I've had the pleasure to work with is a guy named Mike Cassidy who's started three companies his last company was called Xfire Uh, any of you who are PC gamers might know it because it's a social network and instant messaging client for for gamers when he pitched the original idea to us it was a a company called Ultimate Arena and the idea is with these you know folks were playing Counter-Strike and Unreal Tournament online and, you know, here would be a way to actually put your money where your mouth is. You know, I'll play you. You know, if I frag you, I get a buck. That kind of, he was going to set up this whole monetary system for people. You know, you can, you know, play online. You can't cheat. You know, they were going to uh, manage all that. In any event, it was a great idea, except for the fact that the best PC gamers basically stalked the site. They just waited for any innocent person to show up to the site. <laughs> they'd kill them, and they'd collect their money. You know, if you're the innocent bystander, or at least the, uh, the newbie, you, you wouldn't come back because it was pretty frustrating because PC gaming is actually a skillful experience, not just luck. In any event, what they did is they figured out that this wasn't going to scale, but they figured out they had an asset. And the asset were these great gamers who loved Ultimate Arena. Of course, they were making a lot of money on it. So they flipped it on its head, and instead of saying, great gamers, why don't you play against these amateur gamers or beginning gamers, why don't you play with them? So they created the social network, the instant messaging client. They created opportunities for these great gamers to show other gamers how to play the games and how to get better. And they created Xfire. And so here was an entrepreneur that wasn't just invested in this one idea called Ultimate Arena. They were invested in an idea to make gaming experience better. And that's what a great entrepreneur brings you. And so when you're telling the anecdote about how, you know, it was something that the Vision evolved over a period of time. We were fortunate enough to invest in UMA after you've given it a lot of thought. And it had matured to the point where it was a very robust idea, and we're still carrying through on that idea. Uh, Ultimate Arena, on the other hand, we started out early. We ran some experiments, if you will, you know, built the product, launched the site, and then we figured out it wasn't going to work. And so instead of just you know, folding up and saying, forget it, you know, it's not going to work, we recognized that the entrepreneur is really what makes these things sing. And so, redefine the business, focus it on something that worked, and uh, everything worked out well. So, again, another, you know, another anecdote that shows how important the power of entrepreneurship and creative open thinking is. Um, another question I had, you mentioned recruiting early on, and I was just, you know, given the importance of recruiting, you, know, you start with you know, yourself, and then you've got to build a company around that. What percentage of your time do you spend recruiting? I mean, you mentioned dinners and lunches and bring him back and forth and eventually you'll wear them out, that kind of thing. How much time do you spend recruiting?
3: Probably 20, 15 to 20 percent.
2: And has that evolved
3: over time? Uh, no, start- it's, it's pretty much been 15 to 20 percent. And I don't know if it's going to slow down any time. I mean, our executive staff is fully filled out, so it might decrease to maybe 5 or 10 percent. Um, I interview, we have about 60 employees right now. I interview every single person that comes in and I ask the same sort of basic questions to kind of gauge them as a cultural fit, not necessarily as a skill fit because that's already been done by the other people. Um, but I make sure that, you know, every single person that comes in meets a certain cultural standard. So I do spend significant time on that.
2: <laughs> and when you say they, they fit a certain cultural standard, how do you, how do you assess that? Is that, is that a, an art or is there some science behind that?
3: You know, it's probably both. Um, you want to get a really good feeling from the person. You want to make sure that the person is hungry. They understand the vision. They're excited to work. They're not going to look at this as a job. And you want to make sure it's a driven person. Ask them what drives them. That's a great question. What drives you? And you'll know if it's an authentic answer that comes from the heart or if it's, or if it's not. And you can just sort of ask these sort of touchy-feely questions and get a real sense for how this person is, just as a person. Is this a warm person? Do you want this person in the culture? Are they well spoken? Are they art- articulate? Just all these basic things. You know, if it's an o- engineer coming in, I'm not going to ask him a coding question. That's been done. They wouldn't be in my office if they weren't a uh, very skilled coder. And so, you know, I have rejected people on occasion, not very commonly, uh, on coming in because I just didn't think that they were going to be the right cultural fit maybe their answers had too much negativity in them you know they were disgruntled about the last three companies were big failures and everybody was idiots and all this other kind of stuff I mean you just don't want to hear
2: that in an, in an interview necessarily uh, the negative side so so, so switching gears uh, to marketing and you, you t- spoke about intellectual capital and, and, and leveraged marketing uh, kind of a, a softball question here but isn't it doesn't it look appealing to take the venture capital dollars and throw it at marketing I mean you raise millions of dollars, and there's, you've got a message to deliver to the world. And, you know, why not, you know, buy that Super Bowl ad or, or, you know, sponsor a TV show or get ads in lots of magazines or things like that? Isn't that appealing? Isn't that attractive? You
3: know, I, I think it does feed the egos of certain, you know, CEOs that want to see themselves on TV. It doesn't necessarily do the right things for the business. Actually, I want to see myself on TV.
2: <laughs> what well, your board of directors on TV.
3: So. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's just, it's just not, it's, to us, it's not intellectual leveraged capital, and we don't buy big ads. We don't big, do big advertising campaigns. I mean, we will spend money on SEM, and we will spend money on PR, and we might do limited, very targeted, very focused advertising. But as far as just like
2: blanket advertising, what we call brute force
3: marketing, we don't
2: do that. Yeah, it, uh, I said it's a softball question because it's something near and dear to our, our at DFJ about spending as little marketing dollars as possible. I mentioned Xfire. Xfire didn't spend a cent on marketing, and it was just word of mouth. They got it, they basically leveraged all those great gamers to start talking up Xfire, and it, it started to pervade. Uh, how many folks have used Hotmail before? Uh, pretty good uh, cross-section there. So Hotmail, you know, Sabir Bhatia came into our, our offices and had this idea for... You know, free web-based email, and, and we went with that. The uh, the little tweak that we added to the equation was that, it, that whenever anybody sent an email, right at the bottom, it said, "Get your free web-based email at www.hotmail.com." And at first, uh, the reaction of the company was like, "You can't do this. You can't advertise in someone's private email. That you know that you know, forget it. It Doesn't happen on the web." But they you know we we pushed a little bit more. They got comfortable with it, and it really was the the gem of the viral marketing. Uh, scheme that made Hotmail pervasive. Every single user of Hotmail was an advocate for Hotmail and there was that tacit uh, approval for what Hotmail was. There was a tacit approval for uh, you know that little tagline, it was fairly innocuous, no problem and people looked at that and said gosh you know I can get this too. I've got my work email, maybe there's something else. So that was a way of getting the marketing costs down extremely low. So it's not just technology innovation that's critical here. It's also marketing innovation. It's channel innovation. It's business model innovation. So when you're thinking that you have the, the greatest technology there, think about all the other ways in which you can innovate. And that's absolutely critical. And I think while we can't get into uh, too much of the details in UMA, there's a lot of innovation going on here, and it stems way beyond uh, the technology frontier. So. We've got about uh, 15 minutes left or so, so I think maybe it's time to open things up for Q&A. Uh, you can ask uh, Andrew, myself. Uh, the, the floor is open, so we'll go over there. I
1: would like to ask a question. Um, you, you gave ten lessons, ten lessons, and most of them are people-related. We didn't talk so much about I mean, the idea of course. <coughs> I assume it's important. Um, and also, there is a lot of money going to... So the question is for both. There is a lot of, uh, lot of money going to venture capital. So you think that um, a bad idea with a tremendous amount of good people actually can work? <laughs> and the opposite is, is not true. And uh, with so much money going to private equity, that's for you. Don't you think that there is like a finite amount of good people out there, everybody chasing mm-hmm like a lot of money, so don't you think this is getting a little crowded? It's a little dangerous for the future of the model? So that's a
3: question. Um, as far as can a bad idea have great success if it's driven with the right resources and the right people?
1: Not a bad idea, but I mean, it's not a spectacular an okay idea. Just it's all about the people. That's if you're I'm talking
3: asking. about the idea being the product, is that right?
1: Yeah, the market, the products, I mean,
3: I mean, if you have bad ideas across the board, bad ideas for marketing, bad ideas in the product, I mean, if it's just a bunch of bad ideas, it's not going <laughs> anywhere. So if you have a bad product that's not like super differentiated, let's say you're going to enter a market that's very large in size with the same product that some big guy has with the right team that's very skilled, very clever, and can, you know, change the way that things are done across the business, can they be successful? I think Absolutely. I think absolutely you cannot execute the competition, um, but you're, it's bad product that has to be the limited extent of the badness.
2: <laughs> yeah, and I would say that you can start off with a bad idea, and of course you don't know it at the time, but a great team modifies it and changes that's it and evolves, true. and that's what's key. And I guess at the at the margin, you know, if you have a great team and an okay idea versus an okay team and a great idea, I'd rather be there with the great team. Because again, they're going to evolve that okay idea into something that's great. And again, you know, that's one of the, the great things about Silicon Valley is that not everything works. There's so many variables that play out as whether something works or not. And so you can have a great team and, and the company just doesn't make it. I would still back that team again in a second. And there's, just, there's a great um, book uh, by Jerry Kaplan called Startup About Go Corporation. And it's about a fantastic failure, pen-based computing in the in the late '80s, and that was a fantastic failure. Lots of money went into that company. Uh, Microsoft, you know, basically was you know massively competitive, took them out. But the team was so good that they what what happened is that they all went on to greatness. So even though that one venture didn't do great, they hired great, and they all went. A bunch of those guys went on to uh, uh, be the early employees at Netscape. Uh, CEO of Intuit, uh, start uh, uh, Collabra software that got bought by Netscape. I mean, there's all sorts of stories that are around. If you take that graduating class of Go Corporation, it, just phenomenal success. So, uh, again, great teams make things happen. The other part of your question, to answer quickly, is there too much money out there? Um, in a way, yes. In a way, no. I mean, I would never discourage money from going out and funding entrepreneurs. Because you never know what combination of ideas is going to work out well. And, you know, it's a primordial soup of ideas that are out there. And you look at eBay, eBay early on, you know, selling Beanie Babies. And, uh, you know, evolving from that into an amazing ecosystem. The fact that people had their whole profession surrounding buying and selling on eBay. It's an amazing endeavor. But early on, if there wasn't a lot of capital, maybe it wouldn't have gotten funded. Who knows if it would have gotten funded? And the fact that there was so much money going to internet companies—it was companies like eBay that did get funded and ultimately did, were able to achieve the success they achieved. Uh, you do have to be careful. You don't want to overhype things. You don't want to overfund things. But the fact that an entrepreneur can get started uh, because just simply because there's, a lot, there's excess capital out there—that's a good thing. Certainly a good thing for entrepreneurs. Um,
0: I'm just curious. <laughs> going back into recruiting and,
3: um, as well as the timeline at the very beginning of the company, at what point did you start pulling in other people about your idea as you're, like, kind of refining it? Um, and, like, how exactly did you go about looking for those initial people you really wanted to business partner with? You know, at it's, it's the very early, early stages, it's best to work with people that you've met throughout your career that are just really, really, really talented because those are the people that are going to help you form the idea and construct it and evolve it And that's kind of what I did is I kind of reached out to people that I've worked at, worked with at Cisco and places like that and brought them in. And at first, I mean, you know, the guy that runs product management now was at Cisco. He was there for 10 years. And when I first reached out to him, he was still at Cisco. And we were just bouncing ideas off each other. He started off as an advisor. And after like one year of just kind of working together, finally he left. And he was a distinguished engineer at Cisco, which was a really big deal because we had to deal with all the you know, counter offers and all that kind of stuff. But we, we got him out of there anyways, and now he's running the product management group. And so it's just you know, connecting back to the best people you've ever worked with, have them brainstorm with you, and you know, just one step at a time. Just talk to people, keep talking to people. Nobody's gonna steal your idea. It's way too painful to go through the whole process. It has to be your idea that you're passionate about, taking it all the distance. So don't be afraid to, to share it with people as if you know somebody else is gonna go, go, go through that pain for you. You talked about
0: that having a bad product or bad idea is sort of the benchmark. You can, you can get everything else um, good, then you're okay. Um, Sort of have a strong team. I wonder what um, values that has in terms of, you know, what
3: value are you adding to society by
2: successfully marketing a bad product? You want to take that? Potentially no value whatsoever. No, you know...
3: Absolutely, you're, yeah. you're you should you market a good product. That's the answer.
0: Right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that being said, there are always products that get out on the market that have uh, that are of marginal value, <laughs> and and but they don't. That's right. But there, there's a couple of answers to this. But I would say that they don't ha- they just don't win in the long run. And you know our our key when we try to find a great opportunity to, in which to invest. Number one, find the great entrepreneur. But then number two, find something of lasting value. And that's absolutely critical. Uh, As a venture capitalist, my goal, my end goal is supposed to be make as much money as fast as possible, which doesn't sound like a very, you you know, like there's better things to do with life. But the key is, the nice thing is there's amazing alignment between doing something really great and really sustainable and making money. So we don't set out to invest in companies that we just want to sell really quickly and leave somebody else holding the bag. In every company that we fund, we set out with the objective of taking the company public and making it a sustaining enterprise. That's key to us. And in order to do that, in order to feel good about it, you need to have a venture that is changing the world for the good, that is, does have a product that adds value. And, uh, and soon enough, you'll see that UMA is absolutely uh, heading in that direction.
0: Andrew, earlier you talked about the vision and then this, six, I think, imperatives, and then objectives, and then tasks, and having a, a, a color system that you can use week by week. What's the software infrastructure that you, you've got driving that system, and where did that come from?
3: It's just Excel. It's Excel, okay. Yeah. I mean, it's simple. We don't need to put in place any fancy systems. I mean, these are just words and colors, yeah. so, um, you know, I have my executive assistant that's always updating, you know, on a, on a bigger picture level. And then each individual leader updates their section. So it's pretty simple to manage. And it doesn't require a lot of maintenance from the team. But you know, we just keep it. Our philosophy just on a lot of things is just keep everything simple, whether it's an employment agreement, somebody's trying to negotiate something weird, or put in some fancy software system to manage you know, colors, yeah. or whatever it is, just keep it simple. Get the complexity out of the company. Where
0: did you learn the idea of actually Going from vision to tasks and being able to do the weekly meetings, because I've not heard an entrepreneur talk as explicitly about that before. I'm just wondering, did you make, did you make it up yourself? Or did Remember you lesson that?
3: number 10, good mentorship, right? Okay. You can save a lot of time by talking to people who have been there and done that. And so this was passed on to me. And again, we do it at our board member's uh, house. Yep. That's where the off-site happens, and he's there with us Got it. with the sleeves rolled up. Cool. Slow.
0: I'm curious, could each of you share both
2: uh, what drove you when you were a teenager and then has it changed much with time? Uh, Stop the videos, please. (laughs) (laughs) When I got out of prison, (laughs) it was great to be free. (laughs) What drove us? Interesting. Um, Wow. Things have changed. I, I guess the one thing I can say is that for me, at least, life has been a random walk. And I didn't wake up one day when I was 16 years old and say, gosh, I want to be a venture capitalist. Wouldn't that be cool? Um, I had no idea what venture capital was. Uh, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I, I did know I wanted to come to Stanford and learn to surf. And then I came to Stanford and found out it wasn't on the ocean, which was a <laughs> <laughs> it broke my world. Um, but uh, you know, for me, actually, that's a, I, I, I hopefully a good answer because it will show a contrast between us. I'm an individual that loves to know a little bit about a lot of things. And I always admire people who are really good at one thing because I always say, God, I wish I could do that. I wish I could do it. But I've got to be content not being that person because I just love knowing lots of little things. And that's what is great about venture capital is that I get to meet entrepreneurs. They get to teach me about what their company does. And I get to get involved with markets as diverse as gaming and telephony to nanotechnology and semiconductor technology and communications equipment. I mean, it's incredibly diverse, and I fuel, I feed off that. But the contrast are the entrepreneurs, and the, con- the, con- the entrepreneurs are incredibly focused. And I use this as an answer because I have no idea where I, I, it came to me to just like lots of little things, but I've had to grow comfortable with that because that's who I am, and I'm guessing. That Andrew is the person who can be extremely. I hope he's extremely focused. <laughs> he's doing one thing, and it's called Luma. But uh, maybe he's got a different story of how he got to that focus.
3: Yeah, um, I'd say that there's definitely an element of truth to that. The focus. I've I've always been interested in, I guess, like systems, how things work. You know, when I first joined Cisco, it was like, how do I get very, very technical and understand routing extremely deep, like down to the source code level. Um, I love that. I love just the pursuit of knowledge and understanding the system. I mean, when you're starting the company, understanding venture capital, the psychology associated with it, the process associated with it, how to do it most effectively, you know, how to start a company, how to recruit most effectively. I'm just driven by just figuring sort of systems out and mastering systems. I've always kind of been like that, and I don't know, it's probably a little bit of a contrast. Yeah.
0: Uh, I'm doing research on multiculturalism in Silicon Valley and uh, in, essentially in startup companies, and I was wondering about the ethnic demography of your company and whether uh, and, and based on your own personal reflection, whether having an ethnic, ethnically diverse comp- uh, management team makes a difference.
2: I think mo- every one of the uh, initial employees, I mean the diversity is great, and so you just it's, go it's, for the folks to do the job The best
3: person for the job is is what we look for and you're going to get a mixed bag, you know, the best people, you don't know where they're going to come from or who they're going to be, but you get to know them, they're the right person, and that's the person you, you end up building the relationship with.
1: The question on speed, uh, uh, one of the questions that you ask about people is, you know, you gauge for how dedicated they are and how motivated they are. As a startup, uh, how do you always run at full speed
3: or are there times where you can you can't. I mean, you cannot redline. There are moments to redline. I mean, we manage by impending event. So it's like if we need something to get done, it's like this has got to be done by the board meeting. I mean, Warren, when he walks around, it's like there's that damn board member because you know, the board ends up being the bad guy. The board meeting's coming up. This has to be done. And you want that race. I mean, when we come back and we have our set of deadlines, there's always a race the last 30 days as you're hitting crunch time to get that done and as soon as you hit that, people aren't gonna be running at that same speed when you come back. You're gonna take a breather, you know, we, we definitely take care of people. We celebrate every single victory, and we celebrate it quick. So if there's a big deadline, and we hit it immediately, like at the all hands, like the next day, I'll announce like, all right guys, you know, we're having a big karaoke party, it's in my place, up in San Francisco, we're bringing a bus up there, it's going to be full of alcohol, and we do that. <laughs> Everybody gets in a bus and drives up to San Francisco. The bus runs on alcohol.
2: It's a clean tech bus. <laughs> it is. <laughs>
3: you guys thought something else, didn't you? <laughs> and so, you know, you got to have fun. Keep it a very fun environment that people want to hit those deadlines. They want to celebrate. Because, you know, you're going to go through thick and thin as a team, and uh, you can't expect I mean, people are people. They're going to want to slow down, and you've got to give them those breathers to gear up for the next big milestone. Okay,
0: hey, so thank you very much. <laughs> On behalf of Bases and STDP. I'd like to thank Andrew and Mark.